Okay, let me go over a couple of the blanks that I missed. We've got some people here who, uh, that's a big deal. I don't want to say it's legalistic, but it's, uh, it's a big deal. Um, ha <laughs> ha, all right. Okay, I know for a fact that big four I missed. Big four I completely missed. That should be, they, de- they are defiled, with a D, and defile, ending with an E, others. They are defiled, and defile others, that Jesus charged they are insidious, and they seek to keep themselves uncontaminated from the people when they themselves are the contaminant. Contaminant. Other blanks that need to be filled in. Did those cover your blanks? Two. They focus on minors and ignore majors. They focus on minors and ignore majors. They are legalists. They think that their attention to external details remove their need to internally love God and their neighbor, love God and their neighbor. They ought to have done both. They ought to have done both. You got it? You're good? Kevin. Washing. Where? What number? Where? Way at the top. Oh, washing before meals is described, but not prescribed. It happens in the Old Testament narrative, but nowhere are we commanded to. And those are things we get patterns from. Like we see Jesus praying before meals. It's a great pattern. And I, I generally do that. But if someone eats without praying first, they haven't broken some command of Scripture that I'm aware of. So I'm trying to give categories for things that are so second nature and normal for us that if you stop and think about it, it's actually not commanded. It's good. Do it. You know, it's like, like Paul says in Romans 14, the one who observes the day does it to the Lord. Good for him. Another guy doesn't. You know, so that, that's all I was trying to think of with categories for that. It's described, but not prescribed in the, the Old Testament. Yes, Steve. This will be good. No, 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 Steve, Steve, since you've last been here, we've got some new laws. And the, and the, the premier one is you have to speak into the microphone. Give that man a mic. Well, I mean, this, is it on? All right, how do you know in the Bible what's a law, tradition, ritual, and things like that without really studying? Is there some easy way of figuring that out? No. Um, Thank you. That's, uh, next question. No. Um, okay, how do, you, how do you deal with what's a law and what's a tradition and what's a pattern? Great question. Um, it's a lot easier for us, I think, in the New Testament, but even there, you've got to study in the context. So... When we were looking at Jesus sending out the 72 and he forbade them taking money, forbade them taking along provisions, um, is this now a law for all missions, missionary endeavors? The answer is no. We see Jesus sending them out again, telling them to buy a sword, take a money sack. And we look at the missions in um, the New Testament book of Acts and they don't necessarily follow that principle. Here's the general principle. Narrative describes and rarely prescribes action. Now, in the narrative of the Gospels, however, because you've got the king present when he talks, we may well have prescriptions. But there you've got to look at, is Jesus telling a specific person to do something, or is Jesus giving his general teaching to the masses? You've got to answer the question, why does this thing Jesus commands, why is that for everybody? And so when, he's, when you read things like he said to them all, this is a general command. Okay, that applies to us. When he, when he tells specific people to do something, like go ahead and get the donkey for me, it'll be untied, it'll be tied, and un- I don't need to go find a donkey for Jesus. I mean, that, that's a specific person. So you, you've got to study it contextually. But where we conclude that Jesus is speaking broadly, generally, he's speaking with truisms, when he says things like anyone, everyone, well, now we know that includes us, right? But when you get to the epistles, and Paul and the apostles are writing to the church, that absolutely directly applies to us. And, and binds us. But even in there, we see reference to tradition. We see Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. They hold fast to traditions. There are ways of doing things. Like, for instance, we know that the early church met on um, Sunday. You know why the early church started meeting on Sunday? Because it used to be that Saturday was the big Jewish day. Why did the early church start meeting on Sunday? Because it's when the Lord rose from the grave. And so... They refer to it as the Lord's Day, and Paul assumes in Second Corinthians, when you gather together on the Lord's Day, in Revelation, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. They have this pattern. You're free to gather and worship on Wednesday if you want. Like, like 
it's a tradition, and it's good. And if we understand why it's done, and we don't do it for the wrong reasons, slavishly, we keep the rules we meet on Sunday, um, it, it's great. It's a great tradition. Just the tradition of giving um, prayer and thanks before meals. If Jesus thanks the Lord before he eats, that's not a bad idea either. But we don't actually have a command. We don't actually have a law. Um, so another helpful way of thinking about it is flipping it backwards. If you didn't do it, what command, what text are you breaking? And so I always want to get to text, 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 text. What scripture am I compromising? What, what principle am I violating when I do this? And someone needs to have a clear answer, right? Um, so that's how you can start to separate between what is command and law and what isn't. Now, the other big wrinkle is you've got the entire category of the Mosaic law, there's a lot of confusion and a lot of disagreement amongst Christians about what our relationship to the Mosaic Law is. But um, and I'm not and I'm not going to fully go into that now, except to say that we're not under the law of Moses. We're under the law of Christ. First Corinthians nine, that we are um, not bound to the old covenant. My fathers and their forefathers never entered into a covenant with God at Sinai, um, and so I, I don't I don't recognize the Mosaic Law in any part as binding directly in nutio in itself to me. Now, Jesus comes along with his law. He quotes, he takes a lot of the Mosaic law and puts it into his law. But simply reading, okay, you're not supposed to mix fabrics. I better not mix fabrics. No, everything in the Mosaic law will come through into the new covenant, into the law of Christ. But some things change. Some things look identical. Some things look very different. So the law of Moses tells you how to make oaths. You don't swear by the gold, you don't swear by the temple, you swear by the Lord your God, he is your oath. Deuteronomy. Jesus says don't make oaths. In both, there's a high value and premium on integrity and honesty. The specific way the command is given changes. And then you've got things like the entire sacrificial system, where Jesus is the sacrificial system. So that changes most radically. And then you've got other things that are identical. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. So the law of Moses and the law of Christ, as I see it, have a lot of overlap and similarity, but they're not the same thing. And so everything in the law of Moses, Jesus says the law and the prophets prophesied until John. There's a predictive element to the law of Christ, the law of Moses, I mean. It's anticipating this Messiah. So everything in there has value for me. It's not as though, oh, you're not under the law, what do you do, rip out the law of Moses? No, but I largely read it prophetically as it anticipates what Christ will bring as it anticipates the, the ethic, the standard, and the laws of my Messiah. But other Christians try to deal with it differently. We're not gonna, we could spend the entire hour easily on that topic alone. So unless, let me, let me open it up to more questions. If there's not more questions, I'll come back to that because... No, but <laughs> it is good to have you here, Steve. Very good to have you here. Oh, good to have my brother here. Other questions? You can piggyback off that. You can go somewhere else, but... Um, that's the sort of medium-sized answer to how do we know what the command, what's the precept, what's the law. But let me give you one final word on that. To the person who wants to apply it to somebody else, the onus and the burden of evidence is on them to show textually why this is a command and why this applies. In other words, they've got to show not only that the Scripture commands it, but that the command is given to us. You know, um, Why this command would apply to me. It's easy when you're reading like Paul's letter to the churches. He's writing to the church. We're part of the church. Therefore, he's writing to us. It's trickier when it's not direct. And, and you can still legitimately make those connections. But the, the burden of proof is on the one who would intend to burden another's conscience. The burden of proof is on the one who would, who would demand someone else act a certain way. Um, because otherwise, what we've got is Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 talking about being fully convinced in your own mind that not taking your opinions and your preferences and burdening them on other people. And so the, if you're going to go try to tell someone they shouldn't do something, which if it truly is written, you ought to in love, you need to be able to open the Bible and show how that applies. The burden of proof's on you. Okay, question. All righty. Yes, in the back, Kevin Wink. You'd already mentioned this in your sermon, but I think 
it, it would be good to expound upon this that on both sides of this, whether it's what we decide we're going to do, it's it's a matter of our heart. Yeah. So you know we can go to church because we want to look good, or we can go to church because we want to learn. Right. Um, but yet, you said something about well, what if you're you're fighting with your spouse, and do you go to church and try to put on a, a happy face and and be that Pharisee, or mm-hmm. do you? Or it it all depends on your heart. Are you going to church because you want? to hear from God and maybe that's going to help you with what you're fighting on. You know, there everything on both sides whether we go to go th- do things, uh be obedient, it's based on how our heart is, what we're doing it for. There's a movie out um uh oh, I can't think of it. It's it was just out in theaters where this guy basically was an actor and he went and to this church. Oh yeah, I heard about that. I okay, think the name this is, is yeah. exactly what it is. He he went to church mm. and put on the church clothes, the church mm. smile, the church phrases, and that's exactly right. what we can do. And you were warning us against, but we can also look at others and see what they're not doing, right? And try to judge them because they're not doing it. Yet we can right. be doing it ourselves, right? And you know, ab- ab- absolutely, absolutely. I didn't say no. I said absolutely. All right. I said no. It, ah, okay. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I have this, apparently, a friend of mine who listens to the podcast told me that nine out of ten times, even when I agree with something somebody says, I go, no, 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 that's good, yeah, excellent, excellent, no, no. So I'm trying to stop doing that. Um, the, yeah, the, it's not that we shouldn't, I mean, there's a sense in which, the corporate worship gathering is not the place to get in a big debate with your kids or spouse. There's a sense in which I get that. And so the answer isn't necessarily just let it all hang out. But to enable areas and zones where people do get to speak to that and see that. So it, the, the, the Pharisaism is we will look like we've got it together and we will not let anyone have access or see what's going on on the inside. In fact, let me, here's a good rule of thumb or test a friend of mine pointed out to me once. You everyone stops and thinks for a moment about that area of sin in your life the Lord most has his thumb on, that you'd be most ashamed about if anyone knew, that whether it's your thought life, your actions, whatever it is, whatever it is that that is most shameful to you, most um, the Lord is most putting his finger on in your life. How many people have you allowed access in your life to that? How many people can speak to that in your life? How many people, not you need to let everyone in. Not you need to show up on a Sunday, you know, with a, with a shirt that says, you know, I'm, I struggle with beating my wife or whatever. But how many people? What? <laughs> the plot thins. <laughs> No, it's not that you need to show up and be like, hey, how are you doing? Well, you know, and just go into it. But how many people in the church even are aware of your biggest struggles? How, how guarded do you keep the inside of the cup? And, and for the people that do know about what's going on in the inside of the cup, how open are they to speak to that? How do you listen? Do they speak to that? And, and what are you doing about that? Those, I think, are the questions. If you find yourself having a guarded crypt on the inside, that no one has access to, no one knows about, and at the same time, you are very concerned with how you appear and what people think of you, watch out. That's what's going on here. So, again, it's not that Sunday morning is the place to always tell everyone every deep and dirty inside thing, but that we are, which is what gets back to my statement about fellowship, that when we're in each other's homes, each other's lives, you can't hide for long. I've had a number of people live in my house, and I'd always do exit interviews with them because Greg Rolak, who spent two summers in my house, got to see the real state of my marriage. I can't, you can't hide like that. Um, and so I, I asked for, what do you see? Where can I improve? What am I blind to? Um, I, I've had other people live with me, same thing. You, you can't hide from my mom. I should probably have that conversation with my mother. Although I'm not looking forward to that. Um, <laughs> largely because she has a very keen eye. Uh-huh. But what do you see, and how do you how do you get better? And and 
do you open yourself up to that or do you guard yourself from that? It's really easy in America where autonomy, privacy, individuality are prized to keep those zones wardened off, um, cordoned off. And you only have public outings where you've got everything together. That's the danger. And it doesn't mean, and the, the flip side danger is, and you get this from some people, that if it's not authentic, don't do it. And so, you know, if you don't feel like reading your Bible, don't read your Bible because then you're a Pharisee. You know, if you don't feel like going to church, don't go to church because then you're just a legalist. There is, however, a third option. That logic, by the way, doesn't work with if you don't feel like stopping to beat your wife, don't do it. You know, that, that doesn't work. If, try the Dr. Seuss test. Does it work in a boat, on the moat, in the train, on the plane? You know, does it work everywhere? Um, and, and, uh, it works with, that, that sounds, that sounds sanctimonious and religious for nice, middle class, small sins, but it doesn't work with big sins. And you, so what do you do when you don't want to read your Bible? You, you confess that to the Lord, and you say, Lord, um, clearly my eyes are dim. There's some blindness in my eyes, because I'm reading your word, and it doesn't in any way fill me with passion or joy or conviction. I'm just, would, you, would you open my eyes? I mean, David, who wrote Scripture, has to ask God and pray in Psalm 119, open my eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. And, and you do it in faith, recognizing, not doing it saying, well, I'm a good little Christian, because I keep the rules, and even though I don't like reading the Bible, I make myself do it, so there. And you don't say, well, I don't feel like doing it, so I'm not going to do it. The third option is doing it, praying that God would, in the doing, change your heart. So you go to church, even though you don't feel like it, saying, God, I'm going because I think it's good, I'm going because your word calls me not to forsake assembling together. I don't want to. So clearly there's something wrong in my heart. Could you change my heart? Would you open my eyes so that this might be a blessing for me, and I might see the goodness in it? That's, that's the middle and right road in those two ditches. Zeb? Would it be safe to draw a principle from Matthew 5, uh, 23? So if you, are, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Since you're quoting Jesus, that would be very safe indeed. Um, yes. And again, you're getting back to the priority of interpersonal conflicts and relationships, which Jesus says you've they neglected justice and the love of God, loving your neighbor, loving God, and they're focusing on this ritual, and they're on their way to do a ritual, and they need to go be reconciled to their brother. What would God be more concerned with? A great reason to skip church is you've got to go talk to somebody and reconcile them. That's a wonderful, wonderful reason to, to not be here on a Sunday morning. Um, you take that priority to do that. That's a great, great reason. So... Um, but notice again the priority of God's pudding and you can read the Old Testament again and again what is this bleeding noise remember from Zechariah should we continue the fast in the 7th and 10th month should we keep doing that and he said were you ever doing it for me were you ever doing it for the right reasons I don't care you're not, you're not honoring me with your fast because you're not doing it for the right reasons um, so again and again in the Old Testament we see that God is not he's not fooled which is why Jesus calls them fools right you fool does God not see what's going on in the inside? It's as if God's in heaven saying, hey, they're doing the right stuff. And he's unaware of what's going on in their hearts. So, yeah. Anybody? Anything? You there? Really? Okay. Let me get my notes here. And... Uh, <clears throat> Let's talk about this. Um, let's talk about legalism. The reason why I, I tried to stress it in the message this morning, and I'll stress it again now, is legalism has become, if you guys are old enough or aware of McCarthyism, um, where just being even suspected of being a communist was like the worst thing that could happen. You guys, you guys at least lived through it or were aware of it from school. Okay. Legalism has become that nowadays in the church. So the last thing you want to do is be a legalist. And frequently I'll hear people say things like, well, you just want to be careful about being legalistic. We absolutely do. But frequently that's said in a way to sort of not actually provide an argument why something's bad, but just to paint it as bad. And so legalism, and one of the things I was trying to stress this morning, is not simply having an attention to detail. 
Jesus absolutely says they should have tithed the mint, the dill, and the cumin. Right? There's no. It's what it says. This you should have done. Legalism is an attention to detail with a neglect of the big stuff. Legalism is trusting that doing and having an attention to detail will get you right with God. That that's legalism. Legalism is not anything that sounds like a law. That's the other time. This, the other error is anything that sounds like a law or a command. That sounds legalistic. There is law in the New Testament, but folks, Jesus has a law. He has commands. And so just because we're identifying something as a command does not mean we're being legalistic. The other definition of legalism that Jesus uses against the Pharisees is teaching as the commandment of God the traditions of men. And so if we made up our own rules, that's legalism. And if we're teaching that if you keep the rules, you're, you're right with God, that's legalism. But, but uh, it's not simply an attention to detail. That's not inherently, it might be legalistic, but legalists do do that. But that in and of itself is not legal. Does that make sense at all? Nod, yes, one time for yes, two times for no, no. Okay. Um, well, because so often when we're talking, when I, when I get in conversations, and, and it's usually when something like a biblical command comes up or something, and what I'll hear is, hmm, you just want to be careful we don't get legalistic with that. Which I want to say, yes, what makes you think that's legalism? But I don't generally quite have enough nerve to say that. Um, but it's not legalism if it actually is a command of God. It's only legalism if I made it up, right? Um, so, what? Microphone. Or if it's something that, oh, I get additional benefits from God for doing this thing. Right. If, if, if it's merit theology, where by doing these things I get points with God, that's legalism. And if it's teaching my own opinions or traditions of men as God's law, that's legalism. Simply toting a hard line on some. I'll give you an example. When I was in college, uh, I talked to, tried to talk to a couple of friends of mine who were burning CDs, pirating CDs illegally, um, and and just try to say, hey, I'd looked into it because I'd done that before and and realized that was a violation of copyright law. And a friend of mine pulls out his big case of CDs, and he's got like 300 burned CDs. And I said, hey, um, you know, I, I uh, hate to tell you, but I'm, that's, that's breaking the law. And he'd heard a couple of, you know, um, heard a couple of uh, urban legends. Well, as long as you're not selling it, it's okay. Or it actually helps the bands because it helps promote the... No, no, that, it, no that's, I, I'll be happy to point you to it, but no, that's not right. Well, then the fallback position is you're being legalistic. Okay, if you're aware of some big, wide-open, huge areas in my life that I'm not addressing, fair enough. But I'm pretty sure we're supposed to obey the law of the land. We're not supposed to steal. And I'm, I'm pretty sure you are breaking the law and you are stealing. Well, you're being legalistic. No, okay. You know, and, and that's not legalism. Um, it, it could be a person who's running around snooping at people's CDs, trying to find it, who at the same time is, you know, whatever, uh, you know, it could, that could be a legalist, absolutely, but but that doesn't make it that. Does that make sense? No, yes, no, maybe. Um, yeah, oh, Deb in the back. Jonah? Yeah, this whole thing is swirling around so that I don't even have any questions specifically because you've kind of, you know, okay. brained, brained me out here with the sermon this morning. Um, but... What I'm I'm catching myself thinking about is I okay put it personally I am somebody that just pays attention to details because that's the way I was born and I also was raised by parents who no you don't do this and no you don't do that like for instance no you don't gonna go not, you're not gonna go to movies. That's not good. And no, you're not going to go to dances, because that's not good. And um, you're not going to do this, and you're not going to do that, and never any explanation Mm. to why Mm. behind it. Mm. So that particular generation raised a bunch of kids that either, like myself, went along with it, but didn't know why, so I thought I was going to earn brownie points with God, or... They rejected it, burned the bras, burned the 
burned everything, you know, and right. had the rebellion right. of the 60s right. and have right. gotten the culture that we're stuck with right, right now that doesn't know right from wrong. And this is at the heart of it, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes. Um, how? I mean, I mean, what do we do differently? We have to teach our kids good and bad and stuff. What do we do? How should we have done it? We, well, one of the things we want to do is we want to make it clear uh, in our homes that we too are people under authority. And so there are some things in my family that we do because God commands it. And there are some things we do in my family because it seems good to me and it seems good to my wife. Um, so a family might decide, you know what, there's a lot of sketchiness in movies. Not all movies are sinful, but for our family, we're just not going to worry about it. We're not going to mess with it. We don't see movies. Now, I need to make it clear to my kids, if that's the position I take, that this isn't because God has commanded it. There might be some biblical principles that inform it, um, where to, where to avoid certain things, and it's really hard. It takes a lot of work. You've got to go to these websites and look up what's in a movie. It takes a lot of work to, to, to make sure you're not going to see some things really inappropriate. Um, it certainly can be done. We just decided, you know what, there's no, there's no sin in not seeing movies, and why we're just going to avoid the whole thing, or take alcohol, right? I mean, that's probably the biggest thing. Bible warns against drunkenness, Bible warns against all those things, and then Jesus makes wine at a wedding. And it takes discernment. And if you choose, Paul says in Romans 14, that the kingdom of God is neither eating or drinking, and one person chooses not to drink, good for them. You know, and so we could say, this is what we do in our household, and here's why. And, uh, you're making it clear this isn't because God said, and you're separating those things that God has commanded that are timeless, and it's not a matter of your opinion, it's not a matter of your preference, it's what God says, and showing them where God says it, and what things are simply our house rules. The Bible does not say you have to be in bed by 10, but I do, or actually well before that, but you get the idea. So, so the first would be trying to show your children where it comes from the Bible. What I, what I want my children to get is that we're all under the law of Christ, that we're all um, subject to this book. And I don't want them to learn that Daddy uses this book to beat me up, but he never submits to this book. I want to show them, which is why one of the big deals, when I sin in front of my children, I want to confess it in front of my children. I want them to know when they see me disobey God that I, too, need to confess, that I, too, need to seek forgiveness, that I, too, am accountable to this. Otherwise, what they're going to learn is religion and Scripture is something that people in charge use to beat and keep people beneath them in line. And that is absolutely been done, right, in history. The last thing I want them to get, I want them to get we're all in this together, um, in one sense. So that, that'd be the first thing, is making it clear and thinking things through biblically. If you don't like something, why don't you like it? Why is that sinful? That someone's, it's a good, it's a good, go to, um, go to Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5. Where the author of Hebrews, gives us a positively and negatively a a outline or a, a characteristics of spiritual maturity. He, he does it through both positive and negative rebuke. Um, pick it up in verse 11. The author of Hebrews has just paused an extended discourse on Melchizedek in Genesis 11, whom Abraham tithed. And he came out from um, from Salem. And he says this in verse 11. About this we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So the first symptom of immaturity is dull of hearing, which means it's hard to pay attention. If you if we're talking about spiritual things, if, you're, if you fall asleep every time you read the Bible, even if it's one in the afternoon, that's a sign of being dull of hearing. You're not attentive to learn. You're not interested in these things. And, and that's something to work on. Um, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. A sign of maturity is you can you can communicate to someone else the basic principles of the oracles of God. That you could, if need be, communicate the gospel and basic Christian life to somebody. Um, and then he goes on to list what those basic principles are. Uh, no, 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 he doesn't. Sorry, that's in six. He does that. Sorry. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. So the immature, the child who's drinking milk, is unskilled in Scripture. So that's another negative. Positively, maturity comes from knowing your Bible. Um, since he is a child. Now look at 14, and here's, here's maturity. But solid food is for the mature 
for those who have their power of discernment trained. How do you train your powers of discernment? Through constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Which I take to mean a constant practice of what does God say about that? Watch a movie, what does God say about that? You hear about a new law being passed by our president, what does God say about that? And you're constantly not making an opinion, but backing it up with text. You want to mature, take scripture, and apply it to all life. Apply it to everything. And and think it through. And if you can't think it through, get some help. you got the internet, you got friends, you got books, you got smartphones. And so, work on the practice of why is this good or why is this bad? What does God have to say about it? Where does he say it? You start doing that, you're going to become mature very quickly. And if you start doing that, you're going to see through the legalism that some people have where they just make rules, right? Because the temptation for us is wisdom and discernment scary. And the new covenant is a lot more freeing than the old covenant. There's, there's absolutely laws. You're not free to decide to, um, I don't know, you're, you're not free to punch somebody in the face. You're free in Christ, but you're not free to do that. There are commandments, absolute commandments. You're not free to visit a prostitute. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 6. But compared to the commandments of the Old Covenant, there's a lot more room for the wisdom and the freedom and the Spirit. And that scares us, and so we like to make laws. Because discernment is tricky, and laws are a lot simpler. And so since alcohol can be a problem, and some people get drunk, and let's just make a rule we don't drink. And since movies can be dangerous, and you can see bad movies, let's just make a rule we don't do that. And again, for an individual, if that's the way they work it, wonderful. You start applying it to other people. That's when it becomes a problem. And Paul says this, go to Colossians. Colossians um, chapter 2. Um, in, in, in the strongest language here. And uh, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, this, this is an interesting command, by the way. Normally, it's don't judge other people. Here, I am obligated to not allow you to pass judgment on me. Interesting. I'm not to permit that. I'm not to allow someone else to pass judgment on you, me in question of food, drink, with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. I am not to allow someone else to bind my conscience on those matters. That's my obligation. Remarkable. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Asceticism is the belief in the harsh treatment of the body will somehow curb sinful desire. The ascetics um, would at times flagellate themselves and intentionally avoid any pleasures of life with the mistaken belief that uh, it would somehow make them more spiritual. And hedonism, the just giving yourself to pleasure, is equally a danger. Again, the, the, the road is generally somewhere down the middle. Uh, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason, um, by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to elemental spirits in the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. I get this. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, that they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So the temptation for us is, and again, this gets back to our kids, I'll give them these rules, and the rules will protect them from the indulgence of the flesh. These extra rules that God didn't give, I'll give them. Now, I do certainly give my kids all sorts of rules Scripture doesn't give them. They're not allowed to go, you know, leave our backyard without me there. They're not allowed to stay up after a certain time, right? Absolutely. I'm not trusting in those rules to make them righteous. And the danger is that we just make rules so that people don't have to think. And, and so, and in Christianity, we're hardwired for this. Just tell me who to vote for. Tell me what the right answer is. Tell me if I can see this movie. Tell me, um, instead of working through it yourself, give me the answer. 
give me, we want a new law. And we want the answers for ourselves instead of the freedom of the Spirit. And so we're hardwired to that. So rather than, so the temptation is, rather than having you guys figure it out, some of you might figure it out wrong, I'll just give you the new rule. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's exactly how it comes from. And it, it promises to protect. It promises to guard. And Paul says, oh yeah, it has an appearance. Appearance of wisdom. And it's useless in restraining the flesh. And those who grew up in legalistic homes recognized how useless it is to restrain the flesh. You want to, you want, is there a microphone back there? You still have a mic? You want to please get that woman a microphone? And I guess that is why comes full circle, and that is why um, you can be raised with brothers or sisters, and one will completely say, "You're a Pharisee. You're mm-hmm. you're hypocritical. You're mm-hmm. you know," and reject the Lord and anything you say out of your mouth, because they were raised in the same kind of home where another person can go a different direction. Right. And so, thanks. Right, right, right. And Kevin in the back. And there's a whole generation of people. It's not as big of a problem now. When Christianity was defined by those externals, you don't, what is it? You don't dance, don't chew, or go with girls that do, or something like that. I don't know. And these are extra rules that, that God didn't give, and we make them. And there can be places. I went to a school in LA that had a rule of no dancing. And they made it really clear. We don't think this is a spiritual issue. We just have a really hard way of, on paper, defining the difference between a dance club in L.A. and what can be righteous and totally appropriate dancing. And since we're a school and we're not the church, we're just letting you know, just just so that we don't have to deal with you guys clubbing, no dancing. But they made it really clear, this is not a biblical command. And so, you know, and people go, that's legalistic. No, it's not. This is not the church. This is an organization. You didn't have to come here. They said up front, this isn't a biblical command. This is just a way of them functioning loco parenti. That most, basically the bottom line is most of the parents, the kids, and it was mostly the parents paying the tuition, did not want their kids down at LA nightclubs. Fair enough. I get it, you know. Um, but, Kevin. When you say that most things that God puts in His Word, whether it's uh, a suggestion that we should do or a commandment, uh, God's whole purpose in that, I believe, is for our good. There, it's always we're going to benefit mm. from obedience, mm. and it's for His glory by seeing Him work through us. Is that not really wh- why we should? want in our heart to obey and do what it, God is suggesting and commanding? It should be. The author of Hebrews recognizes that discipline at the moment is not pleasurable. I mean, I'll, I'll use the example of the kid. Ted Tripp uses this example. The parent s- says to his child, you will practice the piano. And the child sitting at the piano looks out the window and he sees the other kids playing outside. And the child does not think to himself, I'm investing in a lifetime of enjoyment. He thinks, I wish I was outside. <laughs> right? Now, in reality, he is investing in a lifetime of enjoyment. If he could see the big picture and what the parents are giving him through, through, through competency in the piano and the joy and the blessing it'll be for other people and for him in, in the future life, it's well worth it. Right? In the moment, at the end of the day, it's simply enough that, like, they're my parents, they know best, I don't get it, okay. And sometimes that's where I'm at as a Christian. Okay, God, this is what you said. I don't see this as beautiful. Ideally, we see it as well and we're saying yes. But there are plenty of situations. I mean, try talking to someone in a difficult marriage who's struggling with persevering in that. It does not seem beautiful. Now, in the best scenarios, it does. But sometimes it simply has to be, okay, Abraham, go take your kid up on that mountain and kill him. I do not understand, but okay. And that's cool. I mean, all I'm saying is, you're right. That is the ideal. It is completely acceptable to say, you're God, I'm not. I'm going to try to obey you and I don't get it. Please help me see. That's, that's a good, you're not in an evil place when you're there. That's, that's, but you're absolutely right. Jesus says, my burden is light. His commandments are good. They're all together, I mean, righteous. There's nothing that God's calling on us for our harm. There's nothing that God is calling us to do that is ultimately bad for us. Although at the time, when I tell my kids, no, you can't have another piece of candy, you have to eat your broccoli, they may have a hard time believing that. It is the reality. Um, yes. Hold on. Yacob. 
So there are certain commands which obviously we should follow, um, but there are certain things that are just suggestions. Are you more righteous if you just follow suggestions? <laughs> um, what? What's our best? Zeb wants to know what our best righteousness is. I learned from somebody else in the Bible to answer a question with a question. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it depends how and why, yes. To look at wisdom, to recognize it as wisdom, and to say, I don't care, I'm going to be unwise, is morally, ethically bad. Like, we're not free to choose to be foolish. Would you agree with that? However... Um, wisdom, there's a sense in which wisdom is frequently self-evident or axiomatic, and so where there is suggestion or wisdom given, in other words, I'll give you an example. The Bible will lay out for a young man looking for a wife what characteristics are going to be a blessing, what characteristics are going to um, reward him in marriage. And a, a young man can have his heart set on a woman who, in many respects, is, is not forbidden, right? There's a law about who you marry. You can't marry someone else's wife. You can't marry um, an unbeliever. You can't marry um, a very close relative. Um, and I'm not even certain about that one because it starts later in the text. And Anyway, but there's not a whole lot of rules, laws about who you can marry. There is a ton of wisdom about who to marry. Hold, hold on, Dave. Hold on. I'm getting you in a minute. And so there's this big, wide openness but I could say to somebody, hey, um, let's just say I'm imagine I'm talking to some young man who's thinking about getting married and he's asking me to help. He's looking at three or four women in the church that he could potentially pursue, get to know better. And I could say, you know, biblically, that person, I think, with where they're at, is going to be a greater blessing. Uh, that person is going to be a whole lot easier to live with. And he says, I, I agree, but I, I just really, I'm really interested and, and think I'm maybe built to serve person B over here. Do they sin? No. Are they unrighteous? No. Um, so there is there is room and wisdom for things like that. It's just you're not free to be foolish. You're not free to say, I know what wisdom says, but I don't care. I'm going to be unwise today. Um, yeah, you can't do that. So it's, it's all how and why you choose to do what you do. It would be my answer. So you can ignore wisdom and be completely culpable and guilty. And in chapter 1 of Proverbs, wisdom laughs when your trouble comes upon you like a whirlwind because you would have none of her counsel and despised her instruction. Right? But that doesn't mean wisdom is now some new law to judge. But that's unwise. Repent. So, I mean, you're going through Proverbs. What are your thoughts? Now I'll ask a question, Jacob. Um, well, it's difficult. I mean, that's why I asked the question. I wanted to hear your thoughts. Um, because there's a suggestion we might make to our kids about watching movies or drinking alcohol is, you know, the example yeah. you brought yeah. up. I, I guess I just, I'm very hesitant to say that if you follow suggestions it's more righteous right. or it's somehow better because then like you're suggesting it becomes a new law and then that's the danger that's where the pharisee pharisaical nature creeps in it, so i'd say no you're not more righteous for following suggestions right right and this this will come up sometimes when you're dealing with warning someone they're doing something that seems dangerous Something that seems like it could be a temptation. No, no, I'm fine. I'm not tempted. Well, if they know they are, and they're violating Romans, the last verse of Romans 13, which says, put in the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. If that's what they are, in fact, doing, they're sinning. They know this is, I'm leaving myself room to sin. That's wicked. I can't judge their heart and say that's what they're doing. I can just say, this seems unwise. Why would you to put yourself in this scenario. It just seems like it's fraught with temptation. I'm not tempted. Okay. Uh, then there's a sense in which wisdom will be vindicated by his children, by his fruit. We'll see what happens. And i got to leave it at that. And I can't demand you must be wise. I can just say, 
this does not look like a good deal. This does not look like a good scenario here. Um, and we'll see what happens. And I can't make a rule. So, um, who, who had the mic next? Oh, Elsa. Elsa. Here we go. Do we only have one person on the mic today? Oh, Simeon. Okay. Okay. Okay, Elsa. Is this right to say then there's a misunderstanding about righteousness? Because you, we, our righteousness is in Christ. You yeah. can only be righteous one way. I think what he was talking about to me sounds more like the sanctification piece. You've got to work out your salvation, and that's a personal for each one. That would be different temptations, yeah. different things. Yes, although I, most people I know in this category aren't talking really about righteousness. They could just as easily swap it to, this makes Father happy, this makes Father unhappy. And now we're not talking about judicial standing. We're simply talking about, is God pleased with you doing X, or is God displeased with you doing X? In most instances of people I talk to, you could just as easily swap out that. We're not talking about righteousness, as in why am I accepted before God. That's certainly a form of legalism. I'm accepted before God because I do this stuff. When you deal with the man-made rules, what someone's saying is, let's just take alcohol, right? Christians shouldn't drink. The father is displeased when his children drink alcohol. That's the, that's the, so I'm not, it's not about righteousness, but it is about and if God has indeed said that, you should do it. I mean, this gets ultimately to an interpretive issue. And so there may be people who are persuaded the Bible forbids the consumption of alcohol. If they do believe that, their error isn't legalism, it's interpretation. They're, so that's one of the things you want to find out instead of jumping, that's legalism. No, they think the Bible actually says that. Now we open the Bible and we read it and see what it says. Like, I'll, I'll give you one example that most of you would probably think is legalism. There's an issue, um, it's not at least it's not directly, called the... Uh, um, Deb, help me out here. You, we can't do things in the church that aren't prescribed. The regu regulative principle. And so as Christians think about how to organize the church and how to organize the worship service, there are some in the reform circles who believe if the scripture is sufficient, if this has everything I need for life, godliness, and, um, and, and pursuing and pleasing God, then this must have everything I need to organize a church worship service. And so if God doesn't, you see, this it makes sense. I don't, I'm not even saying they're fundamentally wrong. And so when they gather together to worship corporately, and only when they gather worship corporately, they will not do anything that is not commanded in Scripture. They will not innovate. Now, I think that can be entirely pleasing to God. I think that can absolutely be like Romans 14, you observe a day to the Lord. And, and that's an issue of interpretation. They think that comes out of the Bible. Now, I, I see a lot more freedom in our gatherings, but I don't charge them with legalism, fundamentally. Now, at the end of the day, I do think they are, in fact, teaching something, a commandment, that isn't in the Bible. But they're teaching it because they think it's in the Bible, not because they admit, well, we made this up. You know what I mean? It's where you're like, look, I know this isn't biblical, but come on, this is what you got to do. I mean, or do you want to call that legalism, Zed, the regular principle, guys? Um, no, I would not, I wouldn't call it legalism. I, yeah, it's an issue of doing your best to honor the word of God right. to the best of your abilities. Right. Um, if it was like, once it becomes a switch from this is my conviction to this is everybody's responsibility to follow, then it can become legalism. Right. If like, I mean, alcohol is a great, is a perfect example of that. If you're convicted not to, okay, don't drink alcohol, but you're going to have a pretty hard time convincing me that you're more righteous than Jesus. And, and where, where it comes legalism is when the person recognizes that it's not in the Bible. So if somebody wants to come up to me, even right after this, and say, no, Jer Pastor Jeremy I, or Jeremy, I think that the Bible forbids alcohol. Okay, great, let's open our Bible and have a Bible study. And as long as you're taking me to text, we're not in the category of legalism. The second you say, okay, but still, don't you think it'd be better? You're not appealing to Scripture anymore. Now you're almost admittedly in man's opinion land. And so now we are dealing with the potential of legalism. As long as we're looking at texts, wonderful. Once we stop dealing with texts and get to, don't you see how this is wise, this would be smarter, this would be better, now we're admittedly into the precepts of man as the commandments of God. And there's a lot of overlap between um, traditional yeah. understandings yeah. of things yeah. and legalism. Like it's, it's real easy to make a transition from 
okay, this has been our tradition not to go dancing yeah. for so many decades to all of a sudden, like eventually, oh, you're sinning if you go right. to a square dance or you dance at a wedding right. or whatever. Right. And it can be, it can be really subtle and pernicious. Generally speaking, you'll have a godly guy who has patterns, spiritual disciplines, and his own convictions. And he'll sort get a bunch of young men or people around him who pick that up. So you got the godly guy who gets up at four in the morning and reads his Bible and prays for two hours. Praise God. He does it for all the right reasons. God's honored. That's wonderful. His disciples follow the pattern. We get up at four in the morning. We pray and read about it. That, that's still good. The godly guy dies, passes on. And now in the church, all people in leadership and all people who want to aspire to anything adopt, must adopt this pattern of the godly guy who got up at four in the morning and prayed. Yeah, now we just cross the line. And so someone's considered for being a deacon or something. Well, he doesn't do this thing that the godly guy did. And it was great for the godly guy. <laughs> and it's even good for his disciples, because Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's fine. It's when you then turn around and start pressing on other people. Um, and so, yeah, it can get really pernicious really quickly. I, I, I was at a church once where... They know that alcohol can't be forbidden, but the repeated boasts and declarations all the elders had voluntarily chosen to abstain from alcohol. We say that long enough, and anyone who's even remotely considering applying to be an elder automatically knows what tact they need to take. And it's subtle and pernicious. And this is a church that they know they can't forbid it biblically. But all of our leaders have chosen to be above reproach, so it's not even there be the slightest wrinkle or question to voluntarily abstain from alcohol. But you say that for a decade... And anyone who's even being considered, what, you're going to be the elder who's like, I don't voluntarily do that. I mean, what are you communicating to people? <laughs> right? Right? Um, so it's subtle. It's subtle. It's very easy to slip in. And it might have started with the first elder board. Hey, guess what? All of us voluntarily, dis I didn't realize that. All 20 of us have made the same voluntary conviction. Oh, that's cool. That's great. That's just great. And everyone else has to as well. Yeah, you just cross the line. Um, so, yeah, you need to be able to back it up with the text of the Bible. And, and that, that practice of constantly, why, biblically, why, biblically, text, 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 is how you mature. That's according to Hebrews 5, that's how you mature, through constant practice of examining right from wrong. Our time is up, I don't want to hold you long, so let's pray and break. Lord, thank you for this morning, we thank you for your word. Guard us from both the error of legalism and the, the overreaction to it that uh, is suspicious of any commands or any laws. Lord, help us to be those who keep your commandments, but through the discerning practice of holding your word up to all things, can recognize where, where you have spoken clearly and where wisdom is needed. In Jesus' name, amen.